Welcome to the Canvas of the Soul podcast with your host, Anissa Patman. Enjoy the show. Hello, my listeners, and welcome to season two, the Canvas of the Soul podcast. This is your host, Anissa Patman, continuing with our Embrace You series. That's Embrace You, the letter U, where we are discussing important issues that impact the soul. And today I am so excited with our special guest, Pam Best, also known as Rare Epiphany. Welcome, Pam, to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. No, thank you. It is indeed an honor to have you here on the show. I want to let my listeners know, um, I'm still trying to figure out like why Pam is in the corporate America world. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm going to let her, her, um, tell you guys that, but she has such an impressive resume. Not only can she sing, she does poetry. Um, she's a chef. So, but I'm going to let her begin with her background. I know you're, you're known as Rare Epiphany. Where did that name come from? Um, I actually, you know, I was watching a, a whole series of movies like Roots and, and all of these um, movies and documentaries about us coming to this country um, and uh, how we took on the names of the people who owned us. Right. and um, how we lost our original names. And so I got kind of caught up in this concept of renaming. And in the poetry community, most people have pseudonyms or they have mm-hmm. these names that they perform under and write under. And it was an opportunity for you to look at yourself and name yourself. Wow. And so I was like, well, okay, well, who am I going to be? Like, you know, what am I going to name myself? And, and um, I... Uh, People always tell me the, you know, they use the word different or strange. And so for <laughs> me, I was like, okay, well, I'll take that. I flipped that to rare. Um, uh, it's rare. And epiphany, um, it, by definition, means it is, and um, a lot of people think of it as idea. But one of the iterations of that is um, it is a divine revelation. Wow. Um, okay. uh, and and there's so many things that I discover about life and about myself um, that it seemed appropriate. So I became Rare Epiphany. That's awesome. And that's kind of stuck. <laughs> wow. And so I wanted to, because you're a, you're a poet, as you discussed. What, how did you get into poetry? Um, so uh, my, my dark past with poetry <laughs> is <laughs> I'm, I'm an only child. And so one of the things I I despised about being an only child was I didn't have anybody to, like, play with or talk to uh, when I wanted to play. It wasn't like I didn't have a cousin that lived down the street. And my mother is the uh, oldest of 14. Oh, wow. I had more cousins than a little bit. But they lived at their house down, you know, somewhere else that I couldn't get to right then. (laughs) And it was just me. And so um, part of it was... um, I'm usually very, very open about um, my past. Um, I was molested as a child, mm-hmm. and um, it was it it made for some really dark spaces. And the only place I could really escape was writing poetry. I got introduced to it um, when I was in middle school. I think I was in sixth grade. 
Right. I think I was in sixth grade. And one of my teachers um, was like, okay, we're going to start writing poetry. And I was like, okay. And I thought of poetry like, you know, Shakespeare and Chaucer. And, you know, I, I thought of, of of what we think of classically as what you learn in school poetry. And um, she was the first person that kind of said, no, you can write about anything. And mm-hmm. you can go pretty much anywhere because I was a bookworm. I love books. And I realized I could write about stuff. And then at that time, I could write about it and tear it up. It became something tangible. Right. And I could put this pain to something tangible and then be like, okay, goodbye. It's wow. gone. And wow. and that's how I got introduced into poetry. Kept writing. And, you know, one of my teachers was like, you're really good at this. I think you should keep doing this joined literary club and it kind of morphed from there Mm -hmm. from poetry to moving to atlanta in 96 wow um and learning that i could write more than on the page that you could actually do this so you could perform it and i went to some poetry performances and was like wow like this is this is something you could really like do, and I, I so enjoyed watching people and studying people doing spoken word. Um, met a lot of poets that I'm still friends with now, and who had no idea at the time I was a poet because I wasn't going to stand on a stage in Atlanta until I knew what I was doing. Um, <laughs> Atlanta poets are notoriously ruthless. Wow. Wow. I'm have to go. Like, this is something we do. You don't just hop up here and decide you want to do Rose of Red, Violets of Blue. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm going to figure it out with you. Um, that, that wasn't going to work. And, and they would boo you off stages. Oh, wow. Um, it was bad um, in Atlanta in the 90s. It was wow. ruthless. But it was kind of a learning process. And um, I, I've always been able to escape on a page right. or as a person used to say you get naked on the page I think the, there's no pre, there's no pretense in poetry like you you get to be your whole self on this piece of paper you get to be your whole self on this mic um, even when you can't be your whole self anywhere else right I know this growing up as a kid I used to write poetry uh, probably I would probably get booed off the stage but it was something that I used as an outlet too just to kind of express my feelings and I didn't share it with anyone. I still have those poems today. <laughs> I do too. It's still cathartic. It, it is so, there are pieces. Um, I write way more than I would ever perform. Um, I have like, you know, I have two books. I'm working on three others, but I could mm. write volumes if I would just put everything in there that I've ever written because some of the stuff I realized was not for anybody else. Some of right. it was for me, um, for me to get through whatever that moment was. Wow. And that's it. It was born that way. That's there it is. Right. <laughs> and I'm gonna put it there, and I get to walk away. But it's a way of it's therapy. Yes. Yeah, it definitely is therapy. And I think when I kind of got really enchanted with it was when I, I know this probably sounds weird, but when I watched the movie Love Jones, and <laughs> <laughs> when they were up there doing that, I guess that spoken word, right? When they were up there in the. Um, in the club and doing the the poetry and, and the reading. I was just like, that is so cool. My first thought was, oh, I want to go to a club like that so I can see that in person. <laughs> and I still haven't done that yet. Yeah, you see, you need to. There are plenty of spots around, but okay. it's, Love Jones was a love-hate movie. Right. <laughs> um, because a lot of poets despise the movie. Um, oh, and wow. it, it is, it's just a nature because... 
spoken word and, and the poetry scene has always been kind of an underground thing. And it's always been going on, just, you know, most people didn't know it. Um, and one of the things about Love Drone is it made it very cool looking and mainstream for a lot of people who are not a part of the poetry collective and, and a part of the scene. So um, in the eyes of a lot of people, it kind of bastardized what the scene was. So a lot of people who were not poets came in to be pretend poets um, and uh. it kind of watered down the culture. Um but, and, and it did the whole snapping thing, which is a beatnik thing from the 70s. We don't really do that. Um, and so when people come in and everybody starts snapping doing poetry, um, it really, like, sets people off. <laughs> like, well, you I'm, clap. Well, That's what you do. You clap. You clap. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you told me about uh, Love Jones and how poets foresee, uh, see that. So I'm not going to mention that. <laughs> well, be, and, and we it was and the reason I said it's a love hate because it was an opportunity for one of us to become mainstream because the writer of all that poetry um, that was performed was Saul Williams and Saul Williams is like legend in the poetry world mm -hmm. and spoken word world because he was one of the first and one of the best to ever do it um, and so it was an opportunity for people who had not heard Saul who had not you know been privy to what he does to see him and it gave more opportunity for poets like if there was not a movie love jones i'm right. quite sure that there would not be a deaf poetry jam or all these other things because it sparked an interest right in spoken word that had not been there in the mainstream that's so true that's so true now you had mentioned two things a few minutes ago you had mentioned um being molested as a child was that something that it took a while for you to uh, make your mom, your parents aware of that? Um, I never told my father. I was 23 when I told my mother. Um, and I was 23. I was, um, I told my mother after being in therapy for forever. Um, I, I went into therapy when I left home for college and it took a long time for me to finally say, okay, I'm going to have this conversation. And it was really my therapist saying, you know how if you ever lived in a house that had bugs and if you ever turned on the lights, you see how the bugs scatter. It's not that they're not there when it's dark. It's just you can't see them. They're there and they, they kind of, of congregate um, and they amass. But when you turn on the light, they scatter. And she says, you've got a whole bunch of stuff in darkness in your soul. And you ain't never going to heal till you turn on the light. That's so true. That's true. And and I had to turn on the light. And, and that meant I had to come clean with my mother. Um, and I remember that day vividly. I remember sitting in um, my family home living room and having the conversation with her. And it wasn't the only thing I had to tell her by the time I was 23 because I was also raped when I was 16. Oh, my God. And um, I had to tell her everything. And I told her everything. And she sat there, and she never spoke a word. She couldn't. Wow. I got up, and I left, and I went to my room, and I had one of the best night's sleep of my life. Was she just... When I got up the next day, my mm -hmm. mother was still in the same spot. Oh, my God. She had never moved. And I had to realize that I had 20 years to process all of this. Right. She had not. But when she finally did speak to me, when she finally did speak, she just said, there's a lot of things that make sense. My mother and I had a very contentious relationship when I was younger. Um, 
mainly because in my head, um, I had been molested from the time I was five until I was like eight. And that was when I became a latchkey kid. And I became a latchkey kid because my mother thought that my grandmother was mean to me, my father's mother. And she was. She was a mean woman. But <laughs> that wasn't why I didn't want to stay with her. Um, it was because one of my cousins that lived there was molesting me. He was older. He was um, like 19 or 20 oh um, at the time. And she thought the whole while that it was because my grandmother was mean. And she and my grandmother had a contentious relationship <laughs> for a, a while. Um and then, you know, certain things like the, the things that just people didn't speak of or doctors didn't speak of. I'd gone to the doctor and the doctor, you know, had just thrown his gloves down in disgust and was upset with my mother and wrote a prescription and was like, bye. And she didn't understand why. And my doctor was this big old, bald, Caucasian man. Um, and so he did not say anything to my mother at all. So she didn't, um, she didn't know. She didn't, I mean, even though you went to a physician... I guess this doctor is just thinking that how could you let this happen to your child and probably appear disgusted with her, right? Yes, because he he figured she knew and that it had to be my father. Um, oh my because god! Because it was like I I got uh, I I was sick, but I was more mentally sick. Um, it was more of a uh, she took me to the doctor. They did the exam. He gave me medication, and I had a really 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 bad raging yeast infection. And I was like six. Oh my god! And um, it, there was some damage, and um, and so after he did what he did, you know, he was just kind of done with my mother. But he never said anything to her. His whole assumption was she had to have known because he assumed that it was your father. And then, yeah, in his mind, you know this. How can you allow this to happen? And basically, I'm disgusted. Would you get out of my office? Basically, exactly. And so it was little things. Just it was like she was fitting pieces into the puzzle. Right. Of why you know I wouldn't do certain things. I wouldn't go certain places. Um, why I I I actually retreated so deeply into my head that you know one of the things that triggered me, and I still have to I still have to work through it today, is the word love. And so when someone tells you they love you and they're doing something because they love you, you associate that thing with love. Right. And so I didn't want any parts of this thing that people called love. Love. Because someone um, used it, what love was supposed to be, but they use it in a negative way. And so that's the only way that you've always known it is pain. So, right. And right. so for me, it was like, I don't want people to love me. So I was going to make myself as unlovable as possible um and that meant i wasn't gonna comb my hair i wasn't gonna brush my teeth i wasn't gonna bathe i wasn't gonna match my clothes i would just try to make myself as unappealing as possible as abrasive as possible so nobody could love me because love hurt wow love didn't feel good and i didn't want that and my mother was i don't know what happened i don't know why i don't know this it was a fight every day to just make me do the basic stuff um and one of the reasons i was so tight with my father is because my father didn't care my father was like this is my daughter period now i was also his son 
because my mother and father were married 10 years before I was born. I'm the only child, and I was his son daughter. I had I had my all my Hot Wheel collection. I had big wheels, tricycles. I had all the boy toys, everything non-girly I had. He just showed unconditional love. He didn't care. Right. Your mom was, and your mom had unconditional you know, love. She to the park, and he didn't care if I had on sneakers and socks up to my ankles and shorts and a tank top. And he was just, my hair's all over my head like a bird nest. He would pull it back in the ponytail, throw a baseball cap on my head, be like, let's go. <laughs> and I'd be like, okay. <laughs> so I was a daddy's girl from, from day one. That was it. Because my dad did not care. He was a different version of love for me. Um, he was not the, I'm going to look you in your face and tell you I love you person. But he right. was the tangible, I'm going to show you I love you person. And it's not that your mom didn't love you. She's just looking at you like from a, you know, you're her daughter. You're a girl. And then she's just looking, you got to do these things, brush your teeth and all this kind of stuff. So it's not that she didn't love you. She's just looking at it like you're. From a different perspective. perspective yeah, she, right. My mother was the disciplinarian. She was the, the like, I need you to do this, 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 this. Um, I would get in so much trouble because one of the things I didn't do is my cousin lived down the street from me. My grandmother's house was like four houses down. And I was always afraid he was going to come there. And so when my mother went to work, I'd get out of school and I would come home and I would lock all the doors and I would sit in the bathroom in the bathtub in the dark oh and wait. God. Oh and I would hide in there and I, there were things I had to do before my mom get home. You know how your mom had chores for you to do? Right. They had to be done before she got home and I would get in so much trouble because I would probably be still doing them when she got there because I would wait until it was almost five o'clock when I thought, okay, she'll be home in a half hour. I'll be safe. Right. And so I would jump up and I would try to get everything done between five and five thirty that I should have gotten done between like two thirty and five. And I would be washing dishes and trying to get clothes set up and did this, 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 clean up this and this, 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 and trying to get it done. And I would get in trouble, get my butt beat uh, because it wouldn't be <laughs> yeah. done because she thought you were just being disobedient, cartoons right. or something, and just didn't do it. Um, that I just didn't do stuff because I just didn't want to. That I was lazy and I, you know, all these other things. Um, and I couldn't tell her um, because also in my head. You know, kind of like you have this God complex with your parents that my parents, you know, my mother is God. She got eyes in the back of her head. She know everything I do. She right. knows before I do it, you know, kind of thing. And she had to have known. And if she knew and she didn't do anything, then then I was upset with her. But she really didn't know. But she didn't know. No. There was no way she could have known. She didn't know. And so, but in my head, in my five-year-old, six-year-old, eight-year-old, nine-year-old mind. How can you not know? She, right. she, you know, like, you know everything. Right. You're supposed to know this. But she, but she didn't. And he, your cousin, he's the one that did this from, you were a young age up to you were 16? Or? Um, he was, I was, I was five. Oh, my God. And it was from the time I was five to the time I was eight. He was like 19. So it was from the time he was 19 to the time he was 21. Oh my gosh. And um, I was raped by an older cousin, like let's say 40, when I was 16. Really? And oh. it was, so for me, it became a thing that this is something wrong with me. I don't know what that is. It's something wrong with me. No, it's something wrong with them. 
And I understood that later. Right. But at that time, it was like, there's something wrong with me. And I was kind of the, I was a, a misfit, different child, you know, kind of thing. So that all of the people that I associated with was like, if you found the, the group of misfits in high school, that I was in that group. Wow. I was with those people because those people had nothing to lose. They were the strange outcast. And I was me, my tribe. This is my tribe right here. Um, and so I had a very close-knit set of a handful of friends. I always say my circle is a dot. So, you know, people are like, I got my circle. It's like, no, I got my dot. Because it's very few people I would let wow. in. Um, and most of my friends, for like my mother, most of her friends were not her friends. They were her relatives, her sisters. She's the oldest, you know, second oldest of 14. Right. So all of her friends were her sisters. <laughs> brothers and um you know all of my cousins that I grew up with and I just felt very different from them you know most right. of them had siblings or most of them lived around each other um my mother lived intentionally just outside of the town where everybody else lived so that I wouldn't go to school with my cousin because she was like y'all ain't gonna do nothing we get in trouble right Wow. So I went to school by myself, you know, kind of thing. And my older cousins, once we got to like, you know, middle school and high school, didn't want to associate with lower, you know, lower classmen. Right. So right. even though it was like, you live with me. <laughs> like, I did. Pam, did your... My cousin lived with us when her mother moved to New Jersey. She didn't want to go to Jersey. So they let her move in with us. And, um, she lived with me, but you know, I was a lower classman. She didn't hang with me until I got a car. Oh, of course, right? Oh, yeah. I got the car and then everybody <laughs> want to ride. Everybody want to yeah, everybody want to be friends then. Now, did your did you ever ever tell your father or no? No. It was my father's nephew. Um oh, one of my father's favorite beloved nephews. Oh no. And the last thing I would ever do with my father was break his heart. Oh my god. Is your father still alive? No, my father died in 1998. Okay. Oh, my God. Yeah, I would never do that. And he came to the house often because they live right down the street. And until he joined the military, you know, he was a fixture at the house. And whenever he would come to the house, I would go to my room. And he'd be in there talking with my father. And they would hang out, watch TV or whatever. But I would never come out. Wow. Wow. You, I mean, you had a lot of love for your dad because you... Even though you're in pain, you didn't want his heart to be broken by someone that he obviously adored. Uh, right, and he was my he was my daddy, and he was the person that, beyond anything, I could trust to love me, no matter what. Right, and I didn't want him to not love me. I in my head. Uh, it, because the only person I told at the time was my bestie cousin and it never occurred to me because I don't have siblings and I don't know how that works is that my bestie cousin was his sister Oh God! and so when I told her her reaction was so utterly like I was lying and I was how could you and da 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 and she didn't speak to me for like months that I was like okay so then I can't tell anybody because this is what happened Wow. Has he ever apologized? In a way, sort of, kind of. Sort of, kind of, right? <laughs> because, well, what it was, was after I told my mother, um, she hadn't, she didn't see him until my grandmother died. 
And um, no, it wasn't. It was my grandmother's birthday party, and it was right before she passed. Um, I didn't come home for that. I was living in Atlanta at the time. Um, and they had this big birthday party for her and I couldn't get home and he was there and, you know, he saw my mom and was like, Hey, I'm Jean. And he <laughs> ran up on my mother and hugged her the day he would normally do. Mm, really and different reaction. she didn't quite hug him back. And she just leaned in to his ear and said, I know what you did. Some profound words and there. So he kind of backed up and looked at her and she said, I know what you did wow. and he just kind of just blinked and walked away and he I want to say he came here he did he came here his daughter was living here um and he came here for something and asked if I could meet him I said sure and um went and we had we you know we had lunch and it was kind of a, it was, it was weird. It was, it was kind of an, you know, I was kind of in a really bad place. He's a pastor now, as a matter of fact, um, oh. that he was in a, in a weird, strange place. And, you know, all sorts of things were going on with him and blah, blah, blah. And he beat around the bush a lot. And so what I did was I just looked at him and I just said, Rodney, I forgive you. Wow. And he just looked at me and I said, you don't have to ask. I said, for me, the, the, the definition of forgiveness is before gifts. I'm giving you something before. Before you you ask for it, before you're worthy of it, before you walk in that, but just before. Look, it's not for you, it's for me. Right. I gave you a long time ago. Wow. Before it ever entered into your head to even ask for it, I forgave you because I couldn't get on with my life if I gave the rest of my life to somebody who didn't deserve it. Wow. And, you know, it was like, I I wonder sometimes who I'd be had it not been for that. I said, and I, but I can't get lost in that because I'm right where I'm supposed to be, so I'm good. Right. And so I don't have a problem with him because his life has its own issue, you know, that he's dealt with a lot. He's estranged right now from his daughter. Um uh, because he had such a, they had such a fit when his daughter came out and, um, and then, uh, she's transgender or so he's transgender, but I don't even, I haven't seen him since yeah, teenage years and neither has he, um, his wife passed away of cancer. He's remarried, got a new family. Um, he's a pastor, I think in like Louisiana okay. somewhere, but, um, but yeah, so I, you know, I give people to who made them. Right. You know, I'm gonna give you to God, and I'm gonna let that go. Um, yep. Because I gotta deal with me. And for so many years, I, I've moved from a place of brokenness. Yep. And um, I had to learn how to try to disassociate the things that I had associated with love from what love actually is. And um, I kind of wrote my way through it, and I still write my way through it. You know, it's it's not a destination for me. It's a journey that it, it just is. I keep going. There are days that are good days. There are days that are bad days. Right. No, I can. Wow. Before we go to a quick sponsor break, what 
because there are a lot of parents that their kids are latchkey or, you know, what, what advice would you give them or for signs to look for if uh, their child might be molested or experienced kind of what you experienced? I know I have a dear friend who just told me, um, and I've known her son for, since he was young, that he just told her he was molested by someone that they knew. And so she's having a really, really hard time because I guess, you know, as a parent, rightly so, you're thinking, how could I allow this to happen? You know, all I can only imagine all the things that goes through a parent's mind. But what type of tips would you give a parent to the things to look out for? Um, one of the things is create a safe space. And I know that the way that we were all raised, we, you know, children are subordinate. In, in the way that a lot of us in, in the South especially were raised. Um, and so I didn't feel like I had a safe space to have that discussion with my mother or my father at the time. Um, create a safe space. You know, make sure your kids know that they can come and talk to you about anything and it doesn't change the way you feel about them. Um, anything. Anything. Um, you may not, and uh, you know, have them understand, I might not like it. I might be upset, but that doesn't change the fact that I love you. Right. It doesn't change any of that. But sometimes it's just a sudden change in the way that they deal with life or people. Because somebody who's outgoing can suddenly become quiet. Somebody who is very loving and nice to some people can become very angry right. and withdrawn. You know, any of those sudden changes that we attribute to growing up or puberty, you ask some questions. Figure out some things because my child, I know I became extremely protective of my son and um, I was dating someone for 15 years, but he didn't meet my son until my son could speak and walk. I know that's right. I don't blame I you. I need you to be able to tell me everything. And my son knows that I might not like it, but he can tell me everything. Um, and I make sure that, you know, people would be like, if I had a show, oh, we had a show and we have a, you know, a sitting service that can watch your son. And I'm like, my theory is if I don't have, if I don't know you well enough or trust you well enough to hand you the keys to my car or my house, I for definite <laughs> don't know you enough to hand you my child. No, I definitely agree. I definitely agree. Wow. Okay. We're going to pause for like 30 seconds for our sponsor break. And then I'll be right back with you, Pam. All right, thank you so much. We are back with Pam, also known as Rare Epiphany. Um, this is some really, really great conversation. I want to talk about some of the artists, because you are a singer, you're a songwriter, and you're a singer. Um, and I love jazz. <laughs> so when I was looking at your thing, I was like, Gerald Albright, Stanley Clark, and then one of my favorite, when I was back in my 20s and still now, David Sanborn. I love me some David Sanborn. I always have. <laughs> um, how was that for you? That's amazing. Uh -oh, Pam, you there? 
Uh-oh. Pam? Hello? Oh, here I am. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, why am I, why am I not here? She can't hear me? Oh, yeah. Okay. So, uh, yeah, but, okay, so Dave Collins and, and David Sanborn and all the jazz music, they're my favorites. I grew up with music, all sorts of music. And um, I just had this thing for jazz. I loved it. Mm-hmm. And so um, when I moved to Atlanta, I was working uh, for uh, NBC and for host broadcast training program because that's how I came here, working for the Olympics. And I just never left. Um, and I worked at a couple of radio stations. And while at one radio station, I met um, this guy. And uh, he was a jazz pianist and he was like hey I play for this other guy we need a background vocalist so would you be interested and I said sure and um so we were background uh, I was a background vocalist for um, a band called Company okay and it was actually at the time called Rodell Lewis and Company so Rodell Lewis is a radio uh, personality here in Atlanta and it was Rodell Lewis and Company and then we parted ways with Rodell and um, it was like, okay, so now you're the lead singer. I was like, wait a minute. I, wait, hold on, wait. And they were like, no, no, you're the lead vocalist now, yay. And we just dropped the Rodell Lewis, and we became company. And we decided we're going to spell it K-O-M-P-A-N-I. Um, and the drummer at the time, who was 13, he was crazy. Um, but he was the one that was like, yes, we're going to spell it with a K, and it's going to be I, and it's going to be awesome. And so we just started doing local events, and most people knew us because um, we had tried to change our name to something else, but everybody had seen us with Rodell Lewis, so they would be like, oh, that's company from Rodell Lewis and Company. Uh, this co- okay, so it stuck. That's how we became company. And... Um, <laughs> It was awesome. I love music and musicians. And there were some people who I wish I'd never met. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Like, I I love their music and I loved everything about them. But them as a person was a little intense um, and a little not nice. Uh, Stanley Clark being one of them. But Stanley Clark was notorious for being a butt. Um, And uh, I was like, you're you're a notch on the resume, but now I really don't like you anymore. (laughs) But um, Dave Sanborn is an amazing human. Amazing. I love him. Um, We opened for David Sanborn at the Variety Playhouse. um, And we got in at the Variety because the Variety Playhouse sometimes gives contracts with musicians. And the musicians don't bring the people who are opening for them. They kind of allow the venue to do that. And so we got in good with them after we did an opening for Stanley Clark and were able to deal with his mess professionally um and so they were like we like you guys so we're gonna keep y'all in the roster and when david sanborn came to town they called us and we came and you know we did our um you know they tell you your call time is this time because you do do your mic checks and everything else and we were there we were on time we did what we're supposed to do we got out of the way so they could do theirs um and he was just a really nice dude and he liked us so much that when he came back to town he requested us oh wow and it was like, oh, okay, then. <laughs> but it was really nice. Um, meeting him was awesome. Um, uh, Gato Barbieri, I love him. He was crazy old man who was just everything you ever thought of as an old, old Spanish musician. Oh, wow. Like he was a thousand. Um, and he had like all the girls and all the drinks. <laughs> he was just so bigger than life when you met him. Um, 
And uh, it was just, it was a lot of fun getting the opportunity to not only see these shows. Like, you're paying me to sing, and I get to sit and watch my favorite people. Wow. Okay. (laughs) How was it working with Norman Brown? You learn a lot on the road. You you learn a lot, um, get a lot of good advice from these musicians. And I think I like jazz musicians because jazz musicians still have so much grit because it is such an underestimated genre. Yeah. And so they're not doing the huge arenas and everything else. They're still grinding. Right. You know, to, to make this work and still dealing with the integrity of the music that they, they produce. Deuce. You know, I and being able to see the groups like Foreplay and, oh, you know, too. Alex Bouillon was really cool because um, my uh, DM, my musician, um, at the time, uh, we grew up on um, Cativo Drive here in Atlanta, and Phil Davis was his neighbor, and Phil Davis was somebody that w- would always come and be like, show me how to play such and such, and show me how to play this. And, you know, the annoying little kid wanted to know how to play everything. Um, and so he kind of helped him along with his music, and then Phil Davis became this huge thing in jazz, and he was doing this project with, with Alex Fouillon, who is a Frenchman, and Alex actually moved to Atlanta, stayed at Phil's house for a while, and they worked on um, a CD for him um, called Body Language, and Phil called and said, hey, we're doing this release for his album, would you like to open? Sure. And so I have a couple of pictures with Alex and he's just really nice and they're all just really sweet people. He's outstanding. <laughs> it's always nice when you can meet people that are famous and have that stardom but they're really down to earth and, and nice. Because I, yes. I can only imagine that some probably are not nice like you said. <laughs> Sometimes. Yeah, but it's, it's like he's seriously intense and he was... Um, it was it was a lesson in how to treat people too, right. because you know the people who bring your sound and lights and everything else. One of the reasons that the variety liked us is because those are people that are working to make you look good and sound good. So why would you be abusive to them? Right. You know, you come in and make it easy for them. Okay, I'm good with this. This this is all right. Perfect. Right. You know, you treat them like human beings. They'll treat you like you. How was it working for Norman Brown? I like his music too. Norman Brown was a sweetheart. We did um, a show in Centennial Olympic Park. So, you know, they do the Wednesday Wind Down series. And um, I did the Wednesday Wind Down series to open for Norman. Um, and he was good people. It was um, it was good to open for somebody um, who was not only just a good person or a nice person, but in jazz, so often you don't get to open for people who look like you. Um, a lot of the shows that we did, like on a rare occasion, I did Dave Cos and friends and, um, Wayman Tisdale and Jonathan Butler were a part of the, and friends for that particular tour. So, um, you know, getting a chance to work with them, but Norman was like the, okay, so what, you know, he was the one that sat down and had a conversation with you. Like, okay, so what y'all doing around here? All right, where's your next show? Okay, cool. You know, kind of thing. Um, You know, getting the opportunity at the Variety Work with Michelle Pharrell. And, you know, because she's my favorite singer on all the earth. And I love her. (laughs) Wow. And you also open for the Rippingtons, too? Yes, 
I love the Rippingtons. They were so awesome. Um, and it was funny that we got to open for them and uh, was chit-chatting with them. And I said, well, I'll see y'all again next week. And he was like, what? And I said, because we already have tickets for your show <laughs> at Castaign. <laughs> <laughs> we we open for y'all here, but we're gonna be chilling in the audience screaming uh, next week. Uh, but I love the Rippingtons, um, everything about them. Wow, you have a, an amazing career, amazing resume. Now, besides you being a poet, poet, a songwriter, a singer, a mom, a survivor, you're also a chef. <laughs> Tell us more about that. I wish I could cook like that. See, it was it, I accidentally tripped into that because okay. I never cooked. I never did anything until a friend of mine, um, she was having her 55th birthday party. And um, some friends got together and they were like, okay, we want to throw a surprise party for Linda. And I was like, okay, cool. Now, mind you, this party was at Linda's house. Um, <laughs> it was like, we're going to do a surprise party for Linda. And it was like, so Pam, can you um, get the food and stuff together? And I was like, okay. I didn't know why. I was kind of like, oh, okay. And they were like, you got to find out her favorite foods and da 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 Well, I already knew she likes Indian food. Right. Um, and she, well, she likes, in general, Asian food. So Indian and all things Asian. And so I was like, okay, so I'll plan out this menu and do it. And so they were like, okay, so she was, you know, the girl who was planning everything was expecting, okay, so you'll do like some, you know, rice and, you know, we'll do uh, just whatever, you know, just get something easy, buy some spring rolls and blah, blah, blah. And as I'm like, I'm extra. And so that's not me. I know what Linda's favorite foods are. So what I did was I, um, most restaurants, it's funny, most of the chefs at the restaurant will tell you what are in things because they really don't expect you to go open a restaurant next door. So they're not really secretive about their recipes. Right. And so I went to this place um, called Papa Chow, and it's her one of her favorite things was they have a tofu um, and uh, spinach soup. Um, I'm pescatarian, so I, I eat fish. I'm, I'm a kosher pescatarian, okay. so I eat clean white fish, um, and, uh, but I don't eat meat, so no beef, no chicken, you know, none of that. And Linda is pescatarian as well, and most of my friends are pescatarian, vegetarian, or vegan. Wow. And so I was like, all right, so this part is going to be a mixed bag of everything, though. So here's what I want to do. I know this is her favorite soup. So I asked, and they told me how to make it. And I said, okay, cool. I'm going to make that soup. And then um, I want to do um, Mongolian beef, but I'm going to do a vegan version and a regular version. She loves the um, lettuce wraps from P.F. Chang's. So I will do a vegan version and a regular version. Oh, wow. And, you know, a Mongolian chicken, Mongolian beef, and the vegetables, blah, blah, blah. And so they're looking at me like I'm crazy. Because <laughs> they were like, we would just come buy some spring rolls and some rice and stuff. I got this. And don't ask me how why I knew I had. I, I have no idea. I had never done anything like this <laughs> in my life. But I cooked all the food, made everything, and it was a great success. And so then when my friend Tony's birthday was coming up the next month, he was like, oh, you know you're going to have to cook for my birthday. <laughs> so and I was like, okay. And I had no idea what I was doing. I, I don't know. I, I don't know where it came from. I, but it's another creative outlet. So for me to look at this picture of this thing and to, to imagine it in my head, I literally dream recipes. I dream things in my head. And it's like, I want to see if I can make that happen because I can't draw. 
So, you know, it's like, I can't draw and make nothing happen. I, I, you know, I might listen to a melody and come up with some words, but I want to see if I can paint something on someone's palette. So I, I know what flavors work together more now. You know, I know more about what I'm doing now than I did then because I didn't know what I was doing. I was just making up stuff. Um, and it just happened to work. And I'm like, yay. <laughs> so I, it's where all of that came from. And I learned how to trust. Um, trust my vision and trust my dreams um, because it the things turn out amazing. I have a bunch of guinea pig friends um, who will be like, oh, you made such and such, let me try it. Because I was like, I always wanted to have like an old down, you know, low country brawl, like a, a old school Louisiana shrimp ball. But I'm kosher and I've been kosher my whole life. So I can't eat and do we sausage because it's pork and I couldn't do that. Um, I can't eat shrimp because I'm kosher. Um, I was like, but I, I just love the idea of it. So I started like, okay, well, I have vegan shrimp and I have vegan sausage. Let's wow. go. And I made it and, you know, it was like, I liked it. So I let somebody else try it and they liked it. And it's probably one of the most popular dishes um, on my um rostrum of things that I make uh, is one of the most requested that and salmon chips wow. and my friends do they take me I get a lot of free meals because they take me to restaurants uh-huh. just so I can eat something so I can recreate it because they be like I want this but I don't want to have to come here for this oh wow and so I was like okay and so I went to like two urban licks and they do um, I love that restaurant. salmon chips and they usually make house made potato chips and they have this um, crema that they make with chipotle peppers and cream cheese and lemon and sugar and they make this crema and they use their house smoked salmon and they cover with um, uh, red onion capers and chives and they were like okay eat it try it it was wonderful and they were like can you make this and I said yeah I said and here's why because two urban leaks does not make a secret of their recipe it's actually posted online <laughs> you can make it if you want to, but they didn't want to. No, they so want you to I, do it. I make them, and instead of using house-made potato chips, because the thing with doing house-made potato chips is you have to make them right then and serve it right then because we don't use preservatives when we cook at home. Right. Um, and when you, you know, regular potato chips are a little too salty. They're not made to carry certain things. They're not sturdy enough. Um, so house-made potato chips work best for it, or you switch what the vehicle is that you carry the salmon and stuff on. And so I switched to like the Tostitos bowl because their uh, corn chip is a little sturdier than a potato chip is, but it does not take away from the flavor of everything you put on it. And I promise you that I gotten to the point where I hate making them because I have to make so many. I had to cater a small wedding and literally there were 25 guests at this wedding, but they went through 300 of these things. Oh, Wow. I was like, if I make one more platter of these, we're done. <laughs> we're out of these. They're gone. No more for you. No more. They no love more those. So from that, it's them and you created your own catering company. And what's the name of your catering company? Perfections. Perfections. I like that. Yes, it's and- Perfections. And it's so awesome. And um, Perfections is actually was on hiatus for a good time, good long time uh, for COVID. <laughs> so, <laughs> and uh, I was supposed to move. I was actually supposed to move in um, June of last year. Um, and uh, two days before I was supposed to close on the house, the deal fell through. And uh, it was a blessing. 
um, because there were some things that were discovered um, upon inspection of the house right. that needed to be fixed, and and the the person I was buying from would not agree fix to fix it. it. And so it was like I can't buy the house because it would be too much expense on the front end. I was gonna have to tear down the garage. It was gonna be all kind of craziness. Um, so I was like, okay, it was a blessing. It was heartbreaking, um, but it was a blessing. I'm still packed. I still never unpacked from all that. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> it's uh, it it was it, it God lines up things so amazingly um, because after that um, I knew I didn't feel well. Yeah. I knew something was wrong. You know, how doctors. You know, I was trying to make you think things are in your mind, and I was, I just, I kept firing doctors and getting new doctors because I was like, something is wrong, and nobody, nobody's taking me seriously. Um, I found out uh, for my new doctor, um, I found out in October um, that I had endometrial cancer, mm-hmm. and um, after I found out that, we went ahead and scheduled surgery. Um, I had a radical hysterectomy. Mm-hmm. Um, I was out for a while, got back to Ron's side to work um, in de- late December, uh, right around Christmas time. Um, and uh, I go for my every three month um, inspections. Wow. <laughs> but uh, it was just like everything lined up wonderfully because I didn't need to be in the brand new house and all the new stuff and all the everything with everything that was going on. It was crazy. Right. And then COVID. <laughs> I know, right? Um, it was. Uh, it, it, it's been. It's been a journey and an experience. But we've started back with um, just. I've been doing my personal chef stuff. Um, I do private chefing and personal chefing um, for a couple of families. And so I've gotten back over that in the last couple of months. And I'm doing that piece of it, but I haven't opened the full scale catering thing back up yet. Okay. One of the things I have to do is because I was planning to move, um, I allowed my um, licenses for this kitchen in this um, in my apartment to lapse because I would have to get new licensing for my new kitchen anyway. Oh, okay. Um, and my external kitchen had closed, um, and so I could not use their facility because the facility was closed to cook at. So I had to shut down catering um, for a while. But um, I think they're opened up partially. I got to see what their capacity is um, before I can uh, start the full-scale catering stuff back up. But if people are interested in you catering, uh, they can reach you at the rarepiphany at gmail.com? Rarepiphany at gmail. Um, And uh, they can just let me know what they need. And if I can't do it, I have a bevy of people that I deal with. Um, who are awesome chefs that I'm like, oh, you need XYZ? Let me like, give you her number. Wow. You, you want this? Let me give you their number. Um, because I work with a lot of people, and there's plenty out here, plenty of good room in the kingdom. Wow. Now, you have been through so much from what you've told me from the molestation, the rape, you know, I'm sure the passing of your father, uh, finding that you had cancer and getting that taken care of. But yet you still smile. I mean, I oh, yeah. you still smile. So for other women that are out there that may have experienced some of the things that you have or just having a, a hard time, you know, basically just with life, that they feel that every time they try to go forward, there's an obstacle there. They try to go left or right, that there's other obstacles that are trying to prevent them from uh, succeeding. What advice would you give to those women um, when they encounter these type of difficulties? Um, 
it's funny while you were talking there's a song in my head and my, my friend of mine actually sent me um the video and i'll probably send it to you because you okay. love jazz yes i um, do <laughs> but uh it, it's um herb alpert did <gasps> smile the song you can smile when you can't say a word you can smile when you cannot be heard you can smile when it's cloudy or gray, you can smile anytime, any day. Mm-hmm. And he did a version of this song with all sorts of things. But in the video, in the beginning, all you see is tears. And what I tell people is feel all the feelings. Mm-hmm. A lot of times we find it hard to deal because we don't allow ourselves to feel the things that don't feel good. Um, yes, I cry true. a lot. And, and I used to not cry at all. Um, and it was because it was, it was the never let them see you sweat thing. Um, and it was the myth of the strong black woman. And, you know, we, we use this, this thing of being a strong black woman. We wear it like it's a badge of honor and it's not, um, being the strong black woman means that people use you as a workhorse. And so they dump all of this stuff on you and expect you to just maintain because that's how you're made. And that's not mm-hmm. how you're made. That's how the myth of slave women were made. That's why you were made to be in a field and give birth because you could. You're strong. You don't feel stuff like other people. Right. You don't feel pain like other people. And it's like, no, you do. You do. And you can be extremely human and extremely vulnerable. And there's no weakness in that. There is no weakness in tears. There's no weakness in being angry and upset. Um, And when you allow yourself to feel, you also allow yourself to feel the good stuff, you know, to get excited. Because I had a thing where I just, I I struggle with this tightrope of being expected um, because I don't like to be disappointed. So what I figured is that if I expect the worst in everything, then if I don't get it, then it's a plus. Like, okay, at least I didn't die. You know, like, <laughs> I, and, and I figured out that that's, that's how I operate in a lot of things. And I had to be like, stop that. Because I wouldn't let myself wish for good things. Because somewhere in me, I didn't feel like I deserved good things. Um, and it's a struggle. It's a fight. But it's a fight worth, worth fighting. Right. One of the reasons that I smile all the time or that I look at things optimistically um, is I have a 16-year-old son who has special needs. And um, he's um, autistic and is what they used to call Asperger's, but now they just call high-functioning autism. So he has ASDs on the Asperger's spectrum. Um, And one of the things about him is that I realized that I cannot teach him things that I don't show him. And he is a literal person. So people with, um, you know, on his end of the spectrum with autism, they're very literal. They take things very literally. Um, And so if you say something and then you don't do it, then it cannot be true. Um, So having to really look at myself and say, feelings are fickle. They change all the time. I cannot get so lost in this negative moment that I don't understand that this roller coaster that went down is going to go up again. And so I look forward to the up. That if it's this bad, it can't get much worse than this, which means it's on the way up. Right. Awesome. 
I'm on the way up. And I do. And I find joy in the things that I love, it, whether it's just music, it's a song. And if, if, if I'm sad and there's a song I want to hear that is going to make me sadder, I'm going to listen to the sad song and I'm going to cry and I'm going to be mad. And then I'm going to wake up the next morning, I'm going to get up and I'm going to cook breakfast and, and I'm going to laugh and I'm going to have a good time. It, it is life is, is, is a series of ups and downs. Um, it's a series of things that make you who you are. And once you realize that you are an amazingly complex creation of the Most High God, you you learn to let all that other stuff Go roll it. off. My yeah. mama used to say, it ain't what they call you, it's what you answer to. That's so true. And so people are going to do what they do. Things are going to happen. Curses and blessings rain down on the just and the righteous. Like it, it, it is what it is. And the sooner we stop taking failure at a thing as failure as a person, the better off we'll be. I can fail at a bunch of things. You know what that means? That just means I tried a bunch of things. Right, but at least you tried. I tried it. And people who don't fail, that means they ain't tried nothing. Yep. And failure at that thing does not make me a failure as a person. And we internalize a lot of things that don't need to be internalized. I'm tr- That's so true. I'm guilty of that myself. I internalize a lot. You know the stuff you put on your skin, right? So lotion is great for your skin, but if you drink that lotion, you're going to be sick. Right. There are things that are put on you that don't need to be put in. That's so true. Don't accept that and stuff in your spirit. I'd be like, I hear what you said. I don't accept that, but I hear what you said. <laughs> wow. I know we're getting close to a close, but I just had a couple more things for you. I know you said, you mentioned, um, I think you said you've written two books and you're you're in the process of writing another one. Is that correct? Yeah, I got two books that are written and three in the cooker. Uh, one is a cookbook that my friends will tell you is the cookbook that never ends because it it's supposed to have been out years ago. But I am not that cook. Like, I'm not the measuring cook. Mm-hmm. So in order to write a cookbook, I have to remake all of these things and actually measure them. And be like, yeah, that okay. Because, wow. you know, I'd be like, you know, put some of that in there. You know, t a bit, a little bit. <laughs> so writing the cookbook um i'm working on a poetic autobiography okay um and it's awesome because i wanted to do an autobiography but i didn't want it to be like a like prose like a book book autobiography right so it's poetry for these periods um in my life and um i realized that it, it sounded real schizophrenic um because it is the highs and the lows and the everything in between um and so I'm I'm working on that one. It's a very cathartic venture. Um, and then I'm working on a book. Um, it's been a book that's been in my spirit for forever. Um, and it's called Think. Um, and what it is, is it's an amalgamation of challenges. So, you know, April is National um, Poetry Month. And we do, a lot of poets do a challenge. And the um, National Poetry Month challenge is you write a poem a day, every day for the month of April. Oh, wow. And so I've done it for a few years. And I was like, I should just collect all of those. But then we also do a bunch of other challenges. Like, it's a music challenge. So listen to a Stevie Wonder Songs in the Key of Life. Pick a song, any song, and write. Um, It could be Give Me Ten Words. 
and they give you 10 totally random unrelated words and you got to write a piece. So I was like, I want to take all the challenges because they kind of make you think and they kind of make you, you push yourself as a writer to, to jump into whatever the words tell you they are. Right. Um, and so that's where think came from. And so, um, I'm putting that one together. It's just a painstaking process of digging out poems and trying to put them in some sort of order. Right. Um, and then have someone edit it and then you fight with the editor because you, these are my babies, my words. How right. dare you tell me I need to change them? And <laughs> I dare you tell me to put in this verb game. tense. <laughs> Because you get married to these pieces, and right. it's like, like you're, no. take, you're taking away the meaning. <laughs> I meant what I said, you know, kind of thing. Um, but it's always good to have a good, uh, a good headstrong editor. That right, this all makes sense. Now the two, <laughs> now the, you do have two books already completed, right? Yes, I do. Now, are those um, available have, for people? The first book is of love, the poetry of rare epiphany, and the second book is um, soul kisses. Now, are those available for people to purchase or? Oh, absolutely. And where can we, and give the title again, and where can we find, where can they order those books? Um, You can order um, Of Love, The Poetry of Rare Epiphany, um, and Soul Kisses. Both of them are available. The website is called lulu.com, L-U-L-U.com. Um, and just look for uh, Rare Epiphany or Pamela best okay. um you can find the books there but you can also find them on uh barnes and okay awesome i'm definitely gonna get it yeah so kisses is grown people stuff now doggone it <laughs> and then you when ain't got a boo thing you're gonna be mad <laughs> <laughs> Well, we're definitely going to uh, definitely advertise those two books. Uh, I'm going to end with, I'm going to uh, quote your favorite quote that you've written. But then I would like for you, hope I'm not putting you on the spot, to kind of end the podcast with one of your fav- favorite poetries or spoken words, if that's okay. Okay. Oh, absolutely. All right. So Pam's favorite quote that she's written uh, states this, but I know that greatness is born of struggle and sometimes it takes juggling things and dropping things to realize that broken things don't mean the breaking of me. And that's by Rare Epiphany by, uh, by uh, Pam. Did you want to elaborate a little bit on that before you break us down with some of your smooth poetry? Well, you know what? that The quote, for me, is a reminder that sometimes, you know, we drop the ball on things. Sometimes we drop stuff. Sometimes in these many plates that we spin, some things fall, you know, things fall apart. But that doesn't mean that we are broken or we fall apart. Um, It goes back to failure. Failing at a thing doesn't mean that we are failure as people. Right. Um, just try it. Do it. You know, the worst place to live is, is resentment and resenting yourself for things that you didn't do, that you didn't try because you were scared that they would fail or they wouldn't be successful. You don't know till you try it. Nothing beats a failure but a try. Um, so stop internalizing all the negative stuff. 
all the bad things, all the stuff we messed up. We human. We do that. Right. They don't make the breaking of you. That's so yeah. true. Wow. That's so profound. All right. I can't wait to hear this. So the piece that I, I, I want to share um, is actually I just did a devotional series for Shrine of the Black Madonna. Okay. Um, and so a friend of mine named Ayani Cradell um, asked me to come and do um, some pieces for her for the beginning of her little devotional series. So she has dancers on some and, and poets on others. And she's given me the topic um, called Becoming Who You Are. And so this is the piece that came from that. Um, I, it just fell out <laughs> when okay. she gave me the um, topic. So it's called I Am Becoming. I am becoming the one which I already am. The woman that the great I am knew before I was in my mother's womb, my gifts make room because they knew I was on my way. The less I stray from the path laid before me by the Almighty, the sooner I will reach my destiny to reach the enemy that the enemy tried to distract me from becoming. The woman of my dreams, the one that doesn't just sing of redemption but walks boldly in it. When this chrysalis opens wide and these wings I carried on the inside finally spread and dry, I will fly like the butterfly that I am, that I've been the whole time. I just had to be reminded that she was inside me. It's how God designed me to birth all iterations of me from seeds planted in these strands of DNA. No new me, just a new way of being who I've always been like wind that becomes breeze that becomes storm or tornado all degrees of the same thing i am becoming the peace and the power the sunshine and the shower a myriad of lovely that he created me to be i am becoming me and falling more in love with this journey every day wow that's beautiful that's so beautiful that's so beautiful well, guys, we're going to wrap up our podcast. Pam, thank you so much for showing your vulnerability and sharing your life experiences. And I'm hoping that it will help some of our listeners out there with anything that they might be dealing with and having a hard time with it. Please listen to what Pam has vocalized here and, you know, use that to help yourself get help talk and like she she said don't internalize so much we're all human thank you so much pam and i really appreciate you and the listeners um for being on it for participating with, on the show thank you i'm honored to be here thank you for listening to the canvas of the soul podcast you can contact us at info at canvasthesoul.com you may learn more about our podcast at canvasthesoul.com